Please do take a seat. And as you do so, just let me pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for giving us this evening to open up your words together, to sing your praise and to encourage one another. Please would you um, speak to us now by your Holy Spirit as we open up uh, the Bible. Please would we hear your voice um, teaching us what it means more to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to be his body, to be the church. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most of us here, I'm sure, will have heard or read or seen or watched Macbeth, Shakespeare's dark tale of ambition. Now, if you, if you haven't ever heard of Macbeth or the Scottish play, if you're a superstitious person, um, well then, let me give you a brief synopsis um, you uncultured Philistine. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so Macbeth, he's, he's just won a, a battle, and he meets these three weird sisters, and they give him this, this um, prophecy, if you like, to say that he will be the king. That sets him off on this journey of death and destruction and deceit and disloyalty. And it, it gets darker and bloodier as you go further into the play. He ends up killing his best friend. And his best friends are trying to kill his best friend's son. He, he ends up sending people to kill anyone who opposes him. And ends up as this sort of tyrant king. And all of these things that he does in, throughout the play, well, they're just like symptoms of a, a deeper problem. They're symptoms of, of a, a heart disease, if you like. And that is of his selfish ambition. And in the end, he's, he's consumed by it, by his selfish ambition. And I'm sure if you have the time or the inclination afterwards, you can go and read all of the essays about whether or not Macbeth would have gone on this, this quest of destruction had he not met the, the weird sisters. I think he would have, um, but that's up to you to decide afterwards. We'll have a discussion group on it at some stage if you want. Um, that kind of selfish ambition, though, that is what we've been seeing in Corinth. If you're joining us for the first time this evening, or you're, you're just popping in on this series, you've not heard any of the other ones, well, that's what we've been seeing as we've looked at chapter 12 and chapter 13. That the church in Corinth had been marked by this selfish ambition. That's their fundamental problem. They want this, they want power. They want status. They want acclaim. They want to be the best. They want, they want to be leaders of the church. And the symptom of their, their problem was that they desired the most impressive gifts. As we've read, as, and as um, Sheehan read for us earlier, thank you very much for reading um, that long passage for us, by the way. As you, you may have noticed in this passage, the defining gift for the church in Corinth was tongues. This gift of tongues was mentioned quite a lot. That was their defining gift. They thought that that was the thing, the gift, that marked you out as a believer who had the Holy Spirit and who was truly spiritual. But really, it's just speaking other languages. That's what we're going to see um, from this passage. 
And because they wanted this gift, and only a certain select group of individuals in the church had the gift, well, that led to to factions in the church. It led to, to infighting in the church. It led to pride and arrogance and rudeness, and all sorts of other um, bad side effects of this, this inner disease of selfish ambition. There was, it resulted in a core within the church. Those who were the real church, and then those who were the sort of the second tier, the, the kind of fringe people, those who were kind of the vanilla, beige, kind of bog-standard Christian and perhaps you've witnessed this kind of selfish ambition yourself. Perhaps you've seen it in, in work as people stay in the office longer and longer and longer, just looking for that promotion while neglecting their families at home. Or it's the kind of, of ambition that leads to excessive studying, putting all of your time in, in a library or in your books, rather than neglecting your friendships, neglecting the people that you should be looking out for and caring for. It's the kind of ambition that invariably leads to destruction. And you might have seen this outside of church. Yes, you've seen it in Macbeth, you've seen it in Corinth, you've seen it outside the church. It's also a problem in the church. Because any problems that are outside, any problems the world has, well, they're problems which inevitably come into the church because we're sinful people as well. You see, selfish ambition in the church, well, it tends to look a bit like Wanting to receive for yourself, coming to church just so just for what church can give you, wanting to be on committees just to have a bit of power, a bit of recognition, a bit of status, might be to be seen and admired. The, the concept of Sunday best comes to mind. People always know when I'm I'm preaching in church because I always smarten up a bit, put on a shirt and a nice pair of shoes in the morning services when I wear my tie and my jacket. They always know that. But it's possible to come to church just to be seen, to be respectable. It could be to be needed, to be wanted, to be the person that everybody goes to for a chat, the person that everybody looks to for advice, to be known as the wisest person. Or it could be the ambition to make church what you want it to be. Well, today, we're going to take a good look at ourselves and of our ambitions in the light of the gospel. And what I want you to take away today is that our ambition in church should be for others and should be for unbelievers. And then that should shape how we desire and use our gifts You'll see those points on your little um, handouts, which are in your service sheet. You might find that helpful um, to take notes um, if you want to, to follow along on there. And I should say, we don't have time to, uh, to go through this passage verse by verse, because it is quite long. You probably noticed that as we were uh, reading it. Um, so instead, I want to show us some big principles that we can take out of here and then try and apply those um, into our lives. We're going to have two, um, two about ambitions for gifts, one about our ambition for church. And the first is that our ambition should be for others. Our ambition should be for others. You'll see that on your sheets. And our ambition should be for gifts that can serve others. Look at verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. So that's, that's the guiding principle, isn't it? Verse 1, follow the way of love 
This is following on from what he's just said in in chapter 13, what we heard about last week, that love is patient and kind and does not envy and does not boast and is not proud and is not rude and is not self-seeking, etc., etc., which is really the way of Christ. That's what we saw last week, that, that Christ embodies that love. So we heard in the Philippians reading that John took us to earlier. Thank you very much for that, John. Um, that, that Christ, in love, humbled himself. Humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. That's what we're following. That's, what we're exa- that's the example we're following after. That's what shapes our desire for gifts, our ambitions in the church. So it's the way of love that we're looking for. But which gifts should that lead me to desire? Well, look at verse 1 again. Follow the way of love eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. He who prophesies edifies the church. So Paul says to them, look, you desire these gifts, but actually, primarily, it's the gifts which, which um, build up and edify others that you should want. We might say that prophecy is the, the personal application of the Word of God in the lives of others. So anything which allows me to speak God's Word into your life, that's what I need to desire. That's the way of love that Paul is getting at. Does that mean that tongues is a bad gift then? It would be tempting for us to come to this passage or to come, depending on our church background, and thinking of tongues in a particular way, thinking it's a bad thing, shouldn't be done ever. People who are are a bit weird maybe speak in tongues. But actually, that's not what Paul's saying here. Actually, tongues is, is a good gift. But Paul seriously limits their usage of it. He does it something, using something called the, the yes but argument. Maybe you notice this as we read the, the passage. Look at verse 5. Oh yes, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Yes, 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 tongues is, is very good. Yes, amen, you should have tongues. But I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Look again at at verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Yes, yes, tongues is good. I thank God I speak in tongues. You should desire tongues. Yes, amen. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 in a tongue. That's not point not not two five percent of the words. He'd rather speak 0.0025% of the words that those who speak in tongues speak if his words are going to be intelligible, if they're going to be understood, and if they're going to be helpful for others to know Jesus better, to know the way of love better. So gifts, the, the gifts we desire, our ambitions for those gifts, it should be for the sake of other people. It should be so that others can be strengthened and encouraged and comforted in their walk with Christ. Let me suggest a couple of applications of this just before we uh, move on. The first is, is outside of St. John's. It's what we see in other churches, in other um, traditions. 
Because there are churches, Pentecostal churches, that put a big emphasis on, on speaking in tongues. You can look up examples of this on the internet. Granted, on YouTube, you're likely to see very extreme examples of this. But what you tend to see is, is church gatherings, and everyone is, is speaking in tongues. The, the preacher at the front, he's, he or she's maybe speaking in tongues, or they're, they're whipping everyone up into the frenzy so they can speak in tongues. And everyone's loving it. They're all having a great time, except for the five or six people who have no idea what's going on in the congregation. And they're just kind of standing there like, when, when's it going to get to the end of this bit so that I can understand what's happening? They're not being encouraged or strengthened or comforted by what's going on. In fact, they just think it's a bit, a bit strange. So it's unhelpful um, for us to desire these gifts to bring into the church because they're not um, useful, as useful for building others up. The second application I want to suggest is about us. I want to ask us a question, give us something to think about. It's, do you eagerly desire intelligible gifts to strengthen others? Or is your ambition in church, is your ambition for the right gifts... But is that still selfishly motivated? Now, I imagine most of us are probably somewhere in the middle of that question. It would be unlikely for you to, to be sitting thinking, yep, I want to have this gift. I want to have prophecy just so that I can build myself up. I want to have prophecy so that people will think well of me. I want to have a gift so that I can have all the power in church. I imagine not many people are thinking that, if any, people are thinking that really. But it may be that you think, yep, I want to get these gifts to serve in a useful capacity. And if someone gives me a wee pat on the back at the same time, that would be quite nice as well. That's, that's probably where I am in, in this application. So maybe a good question for us to consider is, what is it that I want for church? Is my ambition for others to be built up? Is my ambition for myself? Is it for what church can provide for me? Because if it is that, well, then that's Corinthian thinking. The church doesn't exist to fulfill my needs and my desires and my personal preferences. Rather, you exist, we exist, for the benefit of others. We've been gifted by God for the benefit of everybody else in the church. Not to come here selfishly to just consume everything for myself. So it might be that there are some things about St. John's that you, you don't like, you don't enjoy, you don't think they're particularly helpful and you want to change them. Well, have you thought they may be the very things that are edifying and encouraging for others? Those might be the things that comfort and strengthen other people as well. So that means we need to consider carefully and prayerfully how we use our gifts in the church. Consider carefully what our ambitions are for the church. Because as we saw last week, and as we see in verse 20, it's children that are selfish, but Christians are selfless. That's the, the second principle from this passage I want you to see, is that um, our ambition should be for the lost. Ambition should be for the lost. Look at verse 20. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, 
be adults. In the law it is, is written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I'll speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some believers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? I'll mention our, our church slogan, church motto, church aim. Is that what it is? It's to know Jesus better, but to make him better known. That's our desire as a church. Yes, we want to know him better for ourselves. We want others in the church to know him better. We also want to make him better known. We want those who don't know Jesus to come to know um, Jesus. So Paul applies these, these verses to, to unbelievers. As they come into the church, they've, he says that tongues are like a sign of God's judgment on them. Because they'll not understand the message. They'll not understand the gospel, and they'll not believe in Jesus, and they'll leave still under God's judgment. And all because the message was unintelligible. It may have been the gospel, but they didn't understand it. And so it's like a sign of judgment on them. They remain under God's judgment. Prophecy, however, is a different story. Look at verse 24. If an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody's prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Remember, prophecy can be understood as the personal application of God's word in the lives of others. So as you prophesy to an unbeliever, will you speak the gospel to them in a way that's accessible to them in a way that's appealing to them, in a way that speaks to them. You give them a prophetic word of the gospel. Let me give you an example of how this might work. Let's say, for example, that, that Jane Smith comes into St. John's one evening. And she comes and she enjoys the nice food and she joins the service and she enjoys herself. She hears a sermon um, from Andy on uh, Luke chapter 15. We've been preaching through Luke. I think even you preached on that one a few weeks ago. And uh, you approach her after the service to make her feel welcome. I think we're quite a welcoming church in St. John. So afterwards, you go up to her, you say, hey, would you like a cup of tea and coffee? Come and have a slice of cake before Ross gets it all. And uh, when you, have you looked at the welcome desk? Have you seen all of, of these things? And as you're, you're chatting to her, you're going through the normal kind of chit-chat, the normal small talk conversation questions. You know, what do you do? Where do you live? Is this your first time in St. John's? And then after a while, you get on to talking about the sermon. And you're, you think, great, it's my opportunity. I've got my chance. And it just so happens, because the sermon was on Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, you get on to talking about the Father's love for us in Christ. And you talk winsomely about how the Father has loved us and welcomes us in with open arms and runs to meet us and sent his son to die on the cross for us. And this is the love of God for us in Jesus. And you speak so well, as, as you're going on, you notice tears are starting to fill her eyes a bit. And you think, uh-oh, what have I said? What have I done that, that, that's made her sort of cry and say, are, are, are you all right? Are you okay? And Jane says to you that growing up, her father had been abusive to her. Now, you didn't know that before you spoke to her. And you've been talking about 
the love of the Father God. That's free for everybody. And now she thinks in herself, I can have the love of a father for the first time in my life. And it's free in Jesus Christ. You've spoken a prophetic word to her. And so she responds. She, she says, God really is among you. She believes. She, you, maybe you pray with her. She fills in a welcome card from the welcome desk. She signs up for Christianity Explored. She does it and she leaves promising to come back the next week. And you think, great, that went really, um, really well. Obviously, that is kind of a, a best-case scenario, isn't it? <laughs> now, imagine that, that scenario again. Imagine it again. Jane comes in, same thing. But imagine instead of in the service, in, in the service instead of a sermon, everybody's speaking in tongues. She has no idea what, what's going on. So it comes to the end of the service, and she's kind of loitering at the back a bit and, and welcoming church. So you go over and say to her, oh, hello, welcome. Come and have a cup of coffee and a slice of cake before Ross gets it all. And um, what did you think of the service? And you get chatting to her, and you um, ask the usual small talk questions again. And she says, yeah, I, I enjoyed the service a bit. Um, didn't really understand what was happening, though. I mean, what were those languages that everybody was speaking throughout the whole service? And um, you answer the question by speaking to her in tongues. And as you're speaking, she just kind of slowly starts backing away until she just exits out the door, and she feels so awkward and embarrassed that she never comes back to church again. Because the problem was the message was inaccessible to her. So is it your ambition to have gifts to make the gospel accessible to those who are not believers? As you walk along Hampstead High Street or you go for a, a picnic on the heath, does your heart burn within you as you see those, those literally hundreds of people out there who don't know Christ, who are still under God's judgment? Or is it your ambition to have a, a Christian social club that works for you you really enjoy and think this is great. I love it every Sunday evening. It's brilliant. I go there. Christian Search Club. But it alienates those on the outside. The third principle I want us to consider is that our ambition for church should be for order and obedience then. To maximize the benefits for all. That's the next point on your sheets. Our ambition should be for order and obedience. And before we get into this part of the passage, I should say that Paul here, well, he's not giving like an order of service in church. He's not saying every church gathering ought to have three people speaking in tongues, three people um, prophesying, people interpreting. He's not doing that. What he's doing is he's correcting what was a chaotic mess in the Corinthian church. It seems in, in their ambition for spirituality, well, the Corinthians had been acting very disorderly. Look at verse 27. Actually, look at verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Yes, all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Yes, 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 yes. But, 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. 
So the negative implications of that verse is that no one's been interpreting. They've all been speaking over the top of each other, and everybody has been doing it, or everybody who has the gift has been wanting to do it every time they come together. And again, look at 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Again, the implication is the prophets have been speaking over one another. I've got an idea. I've got a revelation from God. No, no, no. Hang on. I've got one as well. I've got ones coming to me. They've all been speaking over the top of one another. And it's more like the sort of rugby team clubhouse post-match than it is like church. And let me tell you, that is a disorderly place. I don't know if you've been in, in the, the clubhouse after a game, but it is not very orderly. Then even in, in, at the end of that little segment, verse 33 to 35, it seems that, that wives have been openly disagreeing with or speaking over their husbands in the church, which is very awkward um, for everybody. If you've ever been to a dinner party where the husband and wife have had a massive falling out because one of them is undermining the other, well, it, is, it does not make you leave feeling strengthened and comforted and encouraged you leave feeling awkward and embarrassed and feeling like you don't want to go back to that house for dinner again. Now, this is a difficult part of the passage, I would imagine, um, for many of us. So let me suggest a few things about what this bit is not saying. Because it's possible for us to approach this bit with a bit of our, our baggage, a bit of the stuff that we bring into it. And People have used this passage to say more than what it's saying. So do forgive me if, if I say more than what is being said here. But let me say what it, I think it's not saying. It doesn't say that women should not make any sound when they come into church at all. That would be ridiculous. And it would go against what Paul says in the rest of the book. It's not saying that women shouldn't prophecy or pray in the church because it's clear in chapter 11 that they do that. It's not saying that women shouldn't speak because they have more of a tendency to be disruptive in the church. It's not what it's saying. Rather, what it is is a comment about disorderly marriages disrupting the church meetings. Imagine someone, husband and wife, are standing together, and the husband is speaking a prophetic word to someone, and the other person is feeling quite encouraged by this. And then all of a sudden, the wife kind of pipes up and says, don't listen to him, that's, that's ridiculous, God's clearly not saying that for you. And then they have a massive bust up in the church. No one leaves feeling encouraged and comforted and strengthened. No one especially not the husband and the wife. And the disorders that Paul has listed here, the, the, the speaking in tongues, all speaking over the top of each other, all the prophesying over the top of each other, and the husbands and wives having to go with each other in church, they're, again, they're all symptoms of the underlying problem, aren't they? They're all symptoms of the problem of ambition, selfish ambition in this case. 
See, it seems that the, the Corinthian ambition for spectacular spirituality had led them to desire novelty over obedience. They wanted to move away from the faith as it had been revealed by the apostles. And their disobedience to scripture and the apostolic teaching is what got them into the mess that they're in. You read through the whole book, they're in an absolute mess. They don't even know if there's a resurrection or not. But look at verse 36. Look what Paul has to say. And these are strong words. Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people that is reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophecy. Do not forbid, forbid the speaking in tongues. Yes, yes, yes. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. They're not the only church that exists. They think they've reached this sort of higher plane of spirituality, but Paul says, no, you've moved on from the gospel. You're not you're not demonstrating the behaviors that are, are typical of a Christian church. They're not the only ones who have heard the word of God. And so he says to them, you need to be obedient to what God has said rather than this disorderly mess, this kind of rugby club church that they've become. Let me suggest how this might play out. Because in, in St. John's, everyone sits very nicely and politely during the service. So it's hard to apply this to our, our main gathering, isn't it? It may be a couple of stages during the sermon tonight. You've wanted to shout out at me. Um, but let me suggest how this might work in the context of a small group Bible study. In St. John's, we're fairly hot on small groups. If you're not a member of one, let me encourage you um, to join one. You can come join uh, the one I'm in. It's great fun. Um, let me tell you what we do. We all get together. We have a nice meal. Um, Andy gives a little talk, if, if it's one here. There are others that meet off-site, I know, that, that don't have that. Um, and then after that, we spend some time opening up the word, and talking about what it means, and, and, and prophesying to one another, applying the word to one another. But there is one person who's, who's prepared the study and, and led the study. But imagine if instead of one person saying, right, I'm, I'm leading the study tonight by agreement of the other, with the other leader, everyone comes with something. Everyone comes, maybe someone comes along thinking I'm going to sing a song, someone comes along thinking I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to lead another study, I'm going to read a book, I'm going to tell you what this is. I'm, everybody speaks, everyone speaks over the top of one another. The leader says, right, it's time to begin, and then someone else says, no, it's not. And then they say, right, we're going to open the Bible, and they say, no, shut it, I've got this other thing for you. And there's someone over in the corner speaking in tongues, and then all of a sudden the leader's wife pipes up and says, don't listen to him, he's an absolute idiot, and spends the rest of the evening undermining him. And then there's the new person, perhaps like you, who've just joined the church, who thought, thought I'll go and join Ross's small group, and you're sitting in the corner thinking, this is the worst thing ever, why did I come here? I'm leaving, I'm never going to come back. That's how that could play out, that kind of chaos in church. But... Look at verse 33. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. He's called us to peace with himself through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the gift of his grace. He's called us to peace with one another in the church. So we need to consider carefully our ambitions for the church. 
Here are some questions just as we finish to help us think about that, to help us think about how we use our gifts in gatherings of Christians, whether large like this or whether small. First is this. Is the contribution that I can make going to help others get to know Jesus better or is it going to help them get to know me better? Am I trying to do something which benefits only a small proportion of the church while alienating a lot of others? What effect will what I do have on newcomers or the lost? Because it is possible for a church to develop its own kind of jargon, some kind of Christian lingo, and use that, which then shuts down the service for, for anyone who's new and doesn't understand. What are the ambitions of my heart in wanting to exercise this gift? Is it that I want everyone to look at me and think, wow, they are gifted? Or is it that you want everyone to look at Jesus Christ and think, yeah, wow, he's an amazing savior? Is my ambition for the church a departure from evangelical Bible teaching? There are some hard passages in the Bible. Passages like the one we've seen this evening. And it would have been much easier for me preaching this to just sort of sidestep around it and say, nope, it doesn't really apply anymore. Are the motives of my heart selfish or are they selfless as Christ was selfless in giving himself up for the sake of us? Let's pray. Father God, we are sorry for when we have been a disorderly church. We're sorry for when we have harbored selfish ambition rather than ambitions for others or for the lost or for your glory. Thank you so much, Lord, that you have loved us in Christ, that you have drawn us together as his body that we might have peace with you, peace with one another, and we might show your glory to the world. I pray, Lord, that what we've seen tonight would take root in our hearts, would take root in our lives, that it would conform us to the image of Christ. In his name, amen.